Father, we thank you so much that you have provided for us a guidebook, an owner's manual, for the things in which we are to observe and practice. Just like the Corinthian church, the issues that they were going through, there's, there's no way they could have known your will except the Apostle Paul communicate with them, or unless there are other prophets that come in. But Father, that's how you chose to do it. And we have that record, and we'd ask that you would bless that record to our memories, that we'd be able to recall how we're to act, what we're to say, the desires of our heart, how we're to train them. We would ask, Lord, that you would do these things this morning in order to bring glory to yourself and to further your kingdom. And may, Father, may we be a witness of your word to the world. There is a time, if there is a time that has ever needed it, it is now as we see the day approaching. So give us boldness in this, Lord. And help us in our memories, in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you guys did well in geography, where you had to take the map and you colored in the different states, and then you had to memorize the states and the capitals, and maybe you did that, or maybe worldwide geography, where you had Europe and Africa below that, with India going over towards the Far East, and then you had Cambodia, and you had South Korea and China, and then you bumped over there, and you went to Japan, and then you had the Pacific Ocean with Tonga down below and Hawaii in the middle and all the way up to the Aleutian chain to Australia, excuse me, Australia is down below, but up to Alaska and then coming down Canada, the United States, and you had Central America and South America and Brazil and Peru and Argentina. And then you bump across again, the Atlantic and you have Bermuda there and you have the Caribbean. And you know, it's just, it's just a wonderful thing to know where you're dealing with when something comes up in the Bible. Now, I think most of us know where Israel is. If you looked at a map, it would be all the way to the east in the Mediterranean Sea. And if you went all the way to the west, you would have Spain above that with Morocco down below, and you'd have the Rock of Gibraltar, a little thin area that you went through in order to get into the Mediterranean Sea. And in the Mediterranean Sea, if you're looking at the map, you would see Italy. And above Italy, of course, it goes into places like Germany up there into to the, uh, let's see, it would be to the west, no, excuse me, to the east, you would have Yugoslavia uh, that would be in there. And as you start coming down, you would hit Greece. And from Greece, if you kept on heading east, you would hit Turkey or what is known as Asia. From Asia, you start going down and you have Syria and you have Lebanon and then there's Israel. Now, from Israel, Paul left, and he started going up through Lebanon, through Syria, over through Turkey, where several New Testament churches are, and into the area of Greece. The northern Grecian area was known as Macedonia, and the southern Grecian area was known as Achaia, or Achaia, depending on how you like to pronounce that. And churches in the Macedonia area were Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, and in the southern portion was Corinth. And so Paul went up in that area, and he made his rounds a couple of times in order that the churches might be established there. And you can actually take cruises and trips and go visit those particular towns where those churches, the ruins of those churches, are currently located. So we have the geography down of where Paul went. And he was writing uh, to the church in Corinth and encouraging them by the northern churches and what they had done. The northern churches in the area of Macedonia, they were impoverished churches. The language that is used in the original Greek means that they were at the lowest level of poverty. They didn't have hardly anything. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have been to the impoverished areas of the world, and when they were talking about the 400 shoeboxes plus that were handed out, you just don't know the excitement that these kids that when you give them anything at all, the face, it lights up and they feel so blessed because they have literally nothing. Uh, and I've explained that to you before. But that was the condition of the churches in northern Macedonia, northern Greece area. And so Paul uses them as an example when it comes to giving. Now he says in verse 1, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. These are the poor churches. 
Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So he's saying these Macedonian, the poorest of the poor churches, these, these churches like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, they gave out of their poverty. They didn't have much anyhow, and they gave out of their poverty first for the work that was supposed to be taking an offering or receiving an offering and give it to the church in Jerusalem because they were being persecuted. And Paul was giving this instruction for all of these churches in the Macedonian region and also in Achaia down below and some of the other churches that he had visited. And this collection would come together and then it would be delivered by several men to the church over in Jerusalem. So they gave an offering first for the church and then they found a way to take care of Paul and his companions. And that's what's being referred to here in verse 5. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. And so they were extremely poor, and they gave out of their want. They didn't give out of their abundance. Verse 6 says, So we urged Titus, since we had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part, in other words, collecting the money together and giving it to the church in Jerusalem, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. And so there are six things that are listed here that the church was excelling in. And Paul says there's one that you haven't really excelled in yet. Now, Corinth was a very wealthy city. It was a place where a lot of the traffic from east and west, they would stop there. They had all the fineries from the east going through to the west and vice versa, going back in the other direction. And they had the temple there to Aphrodite and retired Roman soldiers were there, generals and such. And they had a lot of money and the city was built up. Like I said, it was a metropolis. It was a modern day metropolis for them back at that time. And so they had a lot, unlike the churches in Macedonia. So Paul says these churches in Macedonia, they're poor. And look at all that they gave. Now you guys step up to the plate. You give as well. And of course, the Macedonian churches were eager to do this. But the church in Corinth, even though they had all of these problems, which we have spelled out ad infinitum, they had tremendous faith, their speech, their knowledge, their earnestness, and their love. They were all great. Paul commends them for this thing or these things. Like, for instance, faith. They believed God beyond all measure. It's almost like some of them had the gift of faith. In every church, there is those who, there are those who have a gift of faith, where they just trust God beyond all circumstances, that God's going to come through and he's going to provide whatever is necessary for our needs. And we're not going to have to worry about it whatsoever. And they excelled in that, as well as in speech. Now, most people of the world, especially this generation, I have noticed this generation, they don't care really what they sound like. If they get the English language right, our vocabulary has diminished tremendously over the decades from what it used to be. Uh, I remember the transition from when I was in school and then when my kids were in school, there was a move to do this. And you guys remember where you had to take a new word, you had vocabulary words every week, maybe 10 or 15. You had to take those words, you had to look up the definitions, you had to write out the definitions, and then you had to go ahead and put those in a sentence, a sentence that was comprehensible, that it wasn't just something that was incomprehensible. You had to know what the word was, and then you had a spelling test at the end of the week. That was the normal course of events going through elementary school. Going into middle school or junior high and high school, it, that diminished a little bit, but you got your vocabulary built in the first six years or so uh, of your life and of my life. Well, when my kids got into school, they said, well, yeah, we're, we're going to give them these vocabulary words, but they don't have to look them up and they don't have to look, use them in a sentence. And they just kind of know how, have to kind of know how to spell them. And if they don't get them quite right, that's okay, they will. And I, my hair caught on fire at that point, and I talked to the teachers, and I said, what is this? They're not going to learn language if they don't do that. So there has been a move. And by the way, that was in a Christian school. 
And we eventually took our kids out of that Christian school and put them in another Christian school and said, we want our kids to know vocabulary. If you know vocabulary, you're going to be able to communicate. And if you communicate and communicate well, then you're going to be able to get your ideas across. And you're going to be a better witness for Christ. So that's the whole reason for vocabulary. Well, in their speech in Corinth, there's, I'm sure they were uh, ruffians, to say the least. It was a pagan city. And Paul came in there. Of course, there was a synagogue there, but the church started there. And Paul gave instruction like, come on, guys, we have to clean up our speech. We have to have a a mode of communication that is glorifying to God, and people don't take offense at it any time. Now, if you have people getting together for Thanksgiving and for Christmas, you probably have a, and I'm just going to use an arbitrary name like Uncle David or Uncle Charlie or uh, Cleophas or someone who comes that just doesn't have very clean speech, and they tell off-color jokes, and you go, (laughs) yeah. And you move on from there, and you, you just don't try to oppress them too much. After all, it's Thanksgiving, and we should remain lighthearted, and you tolerate people during that time. Well, your speech at those events should be in keeping with the salvation that you have been called to. It's not off-colored. You're not cussing here and there. You're, and by the way, that would also include speaking evil of your leaders. Now, it's one thing to speak truth but it's another to speak evil of those people who are in leadership in our country. We're to pray for them. So our speech, let it be seasoned with salt. Now, you know what salt does. Uh, Guys, you put salt maybe on some of your food, and it tastes good, and some food is really salty, like um, uh, Asian food. You eat some of that, and you go home, and you drink water all night because there's so much salt in it. But if you use just the right amount of salt, the flavor just explodes, like for instance on an apple. Now some people would say, salt on an apple or even watermelon. I don't know if you've ever tried that, but you put salt on a watermelon and you go, wow, it just kind of explodes with flavor. I'm starting to drool here just thinking about it. But it kind of does that with salt. Well, that's how your speech is supposed to be as well. When you're talking to others, your speech should be seasoned with salt. It means it's supposed to be flavorful. And these people excelled not only in faith, but also in their speech and knowledge. Now, it's referring to biblical knowledge here, knowledge of the Son of God, knowledge of the Old Testament. They spent time learning what these things are supposed to be. I just was speaking to the youth about spiritual warfare and having the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the loins girt about with truth, the shield of faith, and also the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit is the only offensive weapon that we have, and we're supposed to be able to use it. Could you imagine going into a battle without a sword? And that's the only thing that you have. And if you try to turn tail and run, there's no armor on the back. And so you'll get that fiery arrow coming right through your back that comes from the enemy so the lord says we're supposed to be his good soldiers we're supposed to have this knowledge that we are in this battle and if we have the armaments if we have the sword of the spirit we're able to use it and with that sword we can tear down strongholds those things which set themselves up a bit against god if you can wield that sword you know back in the day in the 16th through 1800s they would have these swords that would be three or four feet long and they'd be able to swing those things and they would just be as sharp as they could be or if you went over to the east they had the samurai swords or if you went to the middle east they had the scimitar those things would do damage and that's what we're supposed to do with the word of God were to tear down anything that sets itself up. Now, if it's supposed to be a word of encouragement or an admonishment or a rebuke with a fellow believer, then you don't hack and slash with the sword. You get in there like a surgeon and you cut out what's supposed to be cut out. And you're helping them all the way. I'm so thankful that we live in the day and age that we do for this thing called anesthesia. You know, before the last hundred years, they, that's when it was developed. They didn't have anesthesia throughout all of history unless they use alcohol and knock the person out. And I would encourage that as well. If they don't have any anesthesia, general anesthesia, and they have to take out your appendix, that's it. You're getting whiskey and you're getting a lot of it and I'm going to knock you out before I cut this thing out. There's no way. That's being merciful to the individual and you're helping them along and they're going to feel terrible when they wake up. Oh, my side hurts. Oh, my head hurts. It's just going to be a nasty thing to be under that kind 
kind of influence. But I'm thankful that we live in the day and age in which we live now and we can perform surgery like a medical doctor or we can use God's word to perform the surgery as well. The verse that I've used, you've heard me say it a million times, Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Imagine if we only did that all the time and nothing was detrimental to those people who were around us. Well, the Corinthian church, they excelled in faith, in speech, in knowledge, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, and in earnestness, they had the desire. Now imagine being like a soldier and you have the helmet of salvation, everything that I just described to you, and you have this sword and there's a battle raging and you have it in the sheath and you go, not today. I want to take a break today. Are we not to be prepared in season and out of season and to give a reason for the hope that lies within an answer to those who would request the answer? Do you, for instance, do you know how to lead somebody to Christ? Do you have Romans 10, 9, and 10 memorized? Do you have Romans, or excuse me, Acts chapter 16, verse 30 memorized? Do you have those down? This is how you get saved. This is what repentance means. This is what justification means. This is the ultimate glorification. And this is what's going to take place. And heaven is going to be a place that we're all going to dwell for a short period of time where God is right now. Jesus is sitting on his throne. Then we're coming back to earth. Do you know the eschatology surrounding that? Do you know about the rapture? Do you know about the thousand-year reign of Christ? Can you give people this information? Do you know Ezekiel 38 where you can talk to them about the current events and how everything is being set up and the mark of the beast and all of that? That's how we need to be prepared. And you have to want to do it. You have to want to study in order to give a reason for the hope that lies within. But if you say, nah, I'm going to mention a program. I'd rather watch Hee Haw today or Green Acres or Hogan's Heroes. Now, if you don't know what those programs are, uh, they are certainly on television. I don't know if I could recommend any program on uh, network television uh, today, but some of those programs, you know, just sit around, just take ease, and don't worry about it. I'm getting a little older, and I don't have to do anything. That's where you speed up. You get older, you speed up, you have more knowledge, you have more earnestness on the inside, and that's what the Corinthian church was known for, and also love. Now, that was the fifth thing that they were known for, that they, they were willing, they repented of what they were doing in their love feasts, and they were able to help others. They were a wealthy church, and they could easily do so. So they had a program, apparently, for doing that, and Paul speaks about this love that they had for one another, and he goes, with all of that, now it's time to excel in giving. And he's talking cold, hard cash, baby. He's not talking about just giving of your time. He's talking about that stuff that you buy things with. And he goes on to say about giving that I'm not commanding you in verse eight, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So he's saying, look, Jesus became poor for your sake. You can become poorer for the sake of others. If you just give to them, you'll be like Jesus. Now, you might have to do without something you know, like that Frappuccino or whatever it might be or something from Chipotle or wherever you might go. You might have to give something up, but he says Jesus gave everything up in order to get us. So it is not a command to give. It should be because of the earnestness of the heart. Then also, verse 10 we should be eager to give, and here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. According to your means, in other words, according to your ability. Don't You don't have to give beyond your ability. He says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what, what he does not have. So he's not saying, clear out your bank account, don't prepare for the future. He's simply saying, give according to your ability. And be generous, because the Lord will reward generosity. <coughs> Excuse me. So he goes on in verse 
13, and he explains the motivation for others giving here. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equity. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. And of course, here's referring back to Exodus chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, where Moses told the people of Israel, go out and get your manna. And of course, we know what manna means. It's what is it? So they were told to go out and get your what is it and bring it back. And that's what's going to feed you. And if they gathered too much, it rotted over the evening. So each person was supposed to gather uh, a measure of an omer and when they gathered that that was for them now if they gathered more they could give it to somebody who didn't gather quite as much maybe somebody who is older and more feeble they could share and so that everybody would be supplied and that's what's behind this idea of giving and giving specifically from the church to a church in order to minister to the people that were attending there in Jerusalem now going on in verse 16 This talks about the administration of the offering. I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. Like on the inside, he goes, I'm going to do this. I want to do this. I'm going to go forward and take care of this. Verse 18 says, And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. Now, we don't know who this is. Could have been Luke. Could have been Barnabas. Could have been Silas. We, uh, Timothy. We don't know who this was. There's a lot of speculation over the years of who it might have been, but we simply don't know. In verse 19, what is more, he has chosen, or he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. So he's bringing in these men to handle the offering, and it's not him himself. He's not the one that's handling it. He has given the responsibility to trustworthy individuals. And that's what we should do. You know, in this church, I'm not the one who writes the checks. I'm not one who makes the deposits. I could, but I've given that responsibility to others. And we need to avoid criticisms, both from inside the church and outside. If anybody from the outside looks at the church and says, so what's with that gold steeple you just put up on the church? Why is it solid gold up there? Did you actually need a solid gold steeple on the church? There's not a steeple up here. And my father-in-law says, well, I don't know if it's a church if it doesn't have a steeple. You know, I said, well, you know, we can do anything for an offering. Uh, But anyhow, he... He didn't comment on that. I'm going to see him today, and I'll probably remind him of that. But it's this idea you want to be trustworthy in everything, not only with the people outside the church, but the people inside the church. There should never be any question on how the money is going to be spent. Now, there was a point in our lives where um, our Cutlass Sierra was, it just bit the dust. It wasn't going to go any farther. I had replaced the rack and pinion steering on it three different times, having to break the weld of the, the frame that was up underneath. And it was a hassle. And it was just, it was dying. And we didn't have money at the time. And I, I said, Lord, this is not my problem. This is your problem. And a week before that, my daughter, we were going down Lake Jennings, and and she asked me a funny question. And she said, Dad, would we ever drive a Cadillac? And I said, well, probably not. I don't know. No, no, we wouldn't. The next week, a guy comes up to me and goes, hey, man. He just won the lottery or something, got an inheritance, I forget what it was. And they had this midnight blue Landau top Cadillac Seville that had, (laughs) what, 30,000 miles on it or something like that. And it was plush, leather seats, every single thing in it you could possibly imagine. And in my line of work, he tells me, he goes, I tell you what, we don't have any use for this car. 
and I need my house mowed. You mow the house, I give you the car. I said, a Cadillac. Somebody in the church said, you know, you need to get a new license plate that says the Rev on it. And, you know, put that on there. And so we, and it was around Christmas time and there was a Christmas party coming up. And so Patty and I, we pull up in this black, or this dark midnight blue Cadillac. It was pristine. It was just beautiful. And I had to step out and go, no, wait. You know, and I had to explain what was going on with the car that I wasn't taking the funds from the church. And one of the guys said, well, the offering must be good at the church, huh? You know, and, and so there should never be any question about what's going on. The Lord took care of us. He gave us a nice car. My wife, she didn't like so much the big car. You know, people look at you like, oh, hoity-toity, you know, type of thing. <laughs> but anyhow, it, it was a gift from God. We weren't going to look a gift horse in the mouth, and it provided everything that we needed, and it was the Lord doing at the time he took care of us and that's what the lord was doing through the corinthian church here taking care of people with no criticism on the outside no criticism from the inside and it was being handled properly and those people you know who would like to get rich with the monies from the church they ought to do something else nobody should ever say i'm going into ministry because i like the vocation you should be going into the ministry because you have been called if somebody says, I'm going into the ministry because, you know, I think I can make a good living at it. That is the wrong reason to be in the ministry. Because if the, the tithe isn't up or something, you're going to kind of hassle the people, put a guilt trip out there, pack their bags for them and say, get on your way. And then maybe you'll give some money. That should never be the reason for somebody getting into ministry or working in ministry. Now, is it wrong for a pastor to be rich or wealthy? No, it's not wrong. You know, especially some of these pastors who sell books and videos and all that stuff. And they take trips and they get some income from that. Wonderful. Fantastic. I hope you're giving as much to the Lord as you possibly can, but I don't care, and that's not my problem, and they'll give an answer to the Lord just like all of us will, and, and that is good. But the monies that come into a church, they should be given to mission outreach or to missionaries, to salaries, to orphans, to benevolence, to facilities, to supplies, all of those things. And you know, verse 22 goes on to say, In addition, we are sending with them our brother. This is another individual who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. So the churches were supposed to be an example one to another. Now, with this all this idea of giving money and receiving money and working with money in the church, some people, they will misquote the verse and say, money is the root of all evil. No, money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. And so we want to make sure that as believers, we're not in love with money. We don't wear ourselves out to get rich, that type of thing. But we are supposed to be good stewards over what the Lord has given us. Already we've learned that it's not a command that we have to give. We should be eager to give. And it's for the purposes of making sure everyone in the church has enough. And it's administering this particular gift properly. We're supposed to make sure that and appoint trust trustworthy individuals for the task of receiving and giving to others. And remember, there is always a potential for corruption. That's why you have several trustworthy individuals have their hands in it to where they can check back and forth what's going on. Where We have a few people that look at the computer and say, hey, what's going on there? And if you have any questions about that, you can see Pat or Vince or Rudy or talk to Kim or Leslie. You can talk to them. All their hands are in it. So if there's a problem, I get to point fingers is what I get to do. But and I, I just look at it every once in a while. Okay, it's good. You know, we're doing fine. In the COVID time, we're even doing better than we were before the COVID time. And, and it's wonderful. Praise the Lord for that. So, so many times we don't understand what 
giving and receiving is supposed to look like in the church. Now, I've taught about it several times. Whatever it comes up in Scripture, that's when I talk about it. You'll, you know already we don't receive an offering. If you feel you want to give, you drop it in the agape box. That's how it's supposed to happen. So it's between you and God. It's not me beating you over the head saying you better give or else you're not going to have a big reward in heaven. And, and again, put that guilt trip on you. That's not my bag, so to speak. So for those who are here, I'm going to go through this again. You've already heard it. It's probably a reminder to you. But when it comes up in Scripture, I have determined that's when the Lord wants it talked about. And this idea of tithing or giving. Where did tithing and giving begin? Uh, Who should we give to? How much and how often should we give? Let me give you some statistics here. I want to bring you up to snuff. Once and when the church started, I kind of looked into this. I kind of got a feel for what this was like. Like, how do people give? Not what individuals give, because I don't know. I don't look at that. I don't want to. I don't want to judge somebody by what they give or what they don't give. I want to treat each person individually and equally. But I want to give you some of these statistics. And one of them comes from pushpay.com. The other from christianitytoday.com. Now, I'm going to give you, I have 14 here and then a few other, others in another category. <clears throat> it says, only 10 to 25% of the people in any church give. Only 10 to 25%. The second point is, 8 to 10 people who give to the church have no credit card debt. 8 out of 10. Now, wrap your head around that. You give and you have less debt. How does that work? And people say, I have debt, I can't give. And so I tell them, give and you'll have no debt. And they go, wait a second, you're trying to pull the wool over my eyes. What's, what's going on with that? And, and, and it's how the Lord operates. If an individual is faithful to give, opportunities will come your way to take care of debt. I thought that was really interesting. Another one, religious giving is down about 50% from 1990. What's going on with that? Uh, Fourth, an average Christian gives about, now get a number in your mind of the percentage that Christians give. Just think about it for a second. If you had a a scale, say 1 to 20%, and I'll tell you why I'm saying 20% later, but if you had a scale from 1 to 20%, you put in the percentage in your mind what you think it might be. Now I'm going to tell you. 2.5% of their income goes to the church. Most Christians, the average Christian. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. Are we more wealthy as a nation now or during the Great Depression? And by the way, only 2.7% of the population gives 10%. Only 27 of the Christian population gives 10%. Of families that make 75,000 plus, this is the least charitable group. They only give 1% of their income or one-tenth is what they give. They have more money, but they give less. People who attend church 27 plus times a year give an average of to charity, including churches. Number seven, now I like this one, 96% of practicing Christians have given to a church or a non-profit. Eight, 31% of charitable giving happens, guess what month? It's December. That's when everybody gives, is December. Number nine, 73% of church giving happens during the week, not on the weekends. That was interesting. Now, you know, there's baby boomers, Gen Xers, Gen Yers, and millennials. That's who we're dealing with. There's another generation coming up, but that's who we deal with. Baby boomers from 1946 to 1964, I'm right in there, make up 41.6% of the donor population and 30.2% of the U.S. population. So they're by far the biggest givers, baby boomers. Gen Xers from 1965 to 1980 make up only 19% of all donors and account for 26.6% of the population. 
Jen Wires, 1981 to 1997, are 7.1% of donors and 30.4% of the population. You see how it's just kind of taken a slide? So it's the baby boomers who give the most, then it's the Gen Xers, then the Gen Wires, and then you get to the millennials. The millennials, 60% of millennials donate an average of, in a year's time, $481 to anything. Now, I, I could easily turn to them and say, you rotten millennials. But what did we do? Did we teach the next generation? Did we tell them what they should be doing, you know, helping others out and being givers? You see how we're becoming narcissistic and we're spending the money on ourselves and we're not giving it to others? The love of most will grow cold as we get to the end times. And that's exactly where we find ourselves. Now, why don't people give to churches? Why don't they give? This person wrote this article about this. I thought it was interesting. Number one, they come to church, but they don't believe. And there's lots of people that go to church, and they've never accepted Christ, never repented of their sins. They don't believe. Secondly, they're in transition. As Christians, you know, I, I didn't know Jesus Christ was God when I first got saved. I just wanted to avoid hell and be out of the tribulation period, and that's what I signed up for. And then I found out later, oh, he's God in human form. And I learned about the Holy Spirit, and I learned about doctrines in the church, missiology and soteriology and all of these different ologies that were there. I go, wow, okay, I'm in transition. And I learned that I should be giving to the church. Okay, that's good. And then fourth... They're in a difficult financial season. Now, this is one that takes faith. If you're in a difficult financial season, give. And that just, for some people, it causes the hair to raise up on the back of the neck. What do you mean give? I don't have the money to give. I just, you got to trust God in this. Uh, sixth, they don't know where the money goes. You want to know where the money goes? Go see the people that handle the money that I just mentioned, and they'll tell you where the money goes. That new Cadillac is arriving next week. Now, just kidding, it's not. Uh, another reason, they don't see why. Why should I give to the church? Why, why should I, am I paying a salary? What, keeping the lights on, you know, giving to the missionaries. They don't see where it's going, and so they have a problem. We had one person in the church said, you know, I've never seen a financial statement all the years I've been here. Have you ever asked? Have you ever asked to see where the money in the church goes? If somebody really wants to know where it goes, we'll set you up. And you can look and you can say, hey, this is good, or what is this for? Now, we, if you start questioning too much and you're just being nitpicky and uh, you want to do that, we'll kindly usher you out. But if you just want to know, yeah, what's going on? Okay, we'll tell you. Why should we hide anything? We don't publish it like some churches. You know, they publish all that stuff, but we don't do that. Why? Because there's busybodies. And you know, if a busybody wants to come up, we're going to say no. But if you just want to know and you're part of this church, hey, you go ahead and take a look. And then they have too much debt. And I already talked about that. That's the reason why people don't give. Uh, next one is they're not involved. They just show up every once in a while and, yeah, yeah, well, I get my Sunday morning good feeling on and that's it. And not even 27 plus times a year. And also, the last one, they don't trust the church leadership. You. Have you guys ever heard of this one book called Philippians? And Philippians has this one chapter, four, and a verse, verse eight. Whatsoever is true, whatsoever is noble, whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is admirable, if there be anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So we're not to think the words, I don't trust them as far as I can throw them. If you find out there's some chicanery going on or siphoning, do whatever you need to do. Stop it. But we're not to immediately suspect somebody of siphoning off money and misusing the money like California legislature heading to Hawaii this week in the midst of the COVID and Gavin Newsom going to a French restaurant that each check for each person is over a thousand dollars. You know, maybe that's his money, but he gets paid by us. 
you know, are you using it wisely and have a bunch of lobbyists that are there? Is there any corruption in government? Yeah, but we should not find corruption inside the church. So now I have 15 minutes here and I'm going to blaze through this part. Tithing and giving, where did it begin with? Well, it began in the Old Testament. Uh, but we know that Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, and the Worldwide Church of God are leading givers, and the fourth is the Assemblies of God. And, and churches, like I've already explained, they only receive less than 3% from any of the individuals that are in there, except for the Mormon church. They said, Utah is the highest giving state of all the states. Well, why? Because if you don't give, they bring you in and they say, why aren't you giving? And if you're not giving 10%, they look at your bank account, they look at your income, say, why aren't you not giving 10%? And they put pressure on you to do that in Utah, and that's where the Mormons are. Well, where did it come from? It came from the Old Testament, and we know that it, it is in the Old Testament, but stories, Abraham, he gave a tenth to Melchizedek. He's listed both in the Old Testament and Genesis and also in the book of Hebrews. And Abraham gave to that person which was greater than himself, which was Melchizedek. He's called the king of peace. He had no uh, genealogy whatsoever, and it was a prefiguring of Christ. Some people say it was Christ. Well, it may or may not have been, but he gave to somebody greater for the purposes of worshiping God because Melchizedek was a priest and then there's this idea of the tithe that was listed for the Levites and there was a tithe that was to be received by all the people on their produce of the soil and of course that's listed in Numbers chapter 18 a second tithe was to be applied to festival purposes and every third year there was to be a tithe received that was to be eaten in the company with the poor and the Levites so totaling 10% each of the first two times, that's 20%. Remember I talked about 20%, if you put a number in your mind, 1 to 20%. Well, it was actually 23 and a third percent that a person was required to give under Judaic law. And that every third year they gave another 10%, which is a third every three years, 33 and a third. And, and so that's where you get the 23 and a third percent. So if somebody... People say, well, you need to practice tithing. Well, if you practice tithing according to the Old Testament, I would expect to see 23 and a third percent, not 2.5 percent. I don't believe that tithing is for today. I believe, and by the way, on top of all of that, 23 and a third percent, it was expected that you would occasionally give a free will offering, that you would help out in some way. And so they could have been giving up to 30 or even 50% of their income if they felt the Lord was telling them to do that. So uh, as I previously said, Abraham pre uh, paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Jacob paid a tithe to the Lord. And if people wanted to borrow in the Old Testament law, if they wanted to borrow against their tithe, then it was 20%. It's kind of like a credit card today. If you decided, well, I can't pay this week or I can't give uh, to the Lord's work this week. Well, you needed to add 20% on top of that, and that was according to the Old Testament. And there were rewards for tithing. The Lord, you know, the Lord tells us over and over and over never to test him. Do not put him to the test except in one area. And it's in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. When it comes to giving, he says, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your field will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be and he talks about them being uh, filled with a delightful fruit and it's going to be a blessing to the nation. And if you see our nation, are, is our nation declining? It is declining. Are we giving more or are we giving less? We're giving less to the work of the Lord. You see all these dominoes. It's like these dominoes are falling in line. And as the church, you know, we, and I'm part of the church, we've been dropping the ball, I would say, as far as this giving uh, is concerned. So the tithe is Old Testament. In the New Testament, I believe it's just giving. You're supposed to give. We are supposed to give to the work of the Lord. Wherever you get fed primarily, I believe that's where you're supposed to give. Anywhere else you want to give, that would be considered an offering. So how are we to give? We should give willingly and according to our ability, just as Paul was talking about in Second Corinthians chapter 8. This is listed not only in chapter 8, verse 12, but also in Acts chapter 11, verse 29. 
Also, giving should never be done in order to get something from God where you say, okay, God, I tell you what, if I give you this $500, then I'm waiting for you to bless me. Or if you give me $1,000, I'll give you half of it, Lord, if you just give me the $1,000. And we start bargaining with God. God doesn't operate like that. And our giving should be directed towards God, not just towards anything that you feel you want to give to. Like I know somebody, they put in their will that they're going to give to pets. Okay. Yeah, if you want to give to pets, that's just fine. But the person's not a believer, but I would say anybody that's a believer, your primary thing is to be to the Lord. And then if you want to give to pets, you go right ahead. The feline club or whatever it might be, or the dogs or the little pugs. I love pugs, you know, so I'm going to give to pugs. Okay, give to pugs. That's just fine. But the Lord is supposed to be number one. And our giving is also supposed to be directed towards men and women. If they have a need, we're supposed to help support them if they are unable to support themselves. And that's the key. If they're unable, if they're unwilling, guess what's going to happen? They're going to get thinner because nobody's going to help them. At least we shouldn't. And we should always be discerning. Is this because you don't want to? Or is this because you are unwilling? Or because you're unable or unwilling? We have to make that discernment. We don't just give out to anybody who says, can I have some help? And by the way, when we give out the help, I I think without exception, it has always been that we've given out help because of bad decisions that have been made. They've made bad decisions. They found themselves in this terrible place because of their decisions. Now, we could, and some churches will do this, they'll come out and say, well, sorry you made this bad decision. <laughs> Good luck with that one. You know, which person that was doing well, and maybe they lost everything because of a fire or something like that, we haven't had that occasion to help somebody out. But if, if they've really had a circumstance, you know, a heart attack and uh, dog died, car accident, fire in the house and all that, okay, no problem, we're going to help you out. But even the person who made bad decisions, we can choose to have mercy on them. You don't deserve this, just like I wouldn't deserve it, but we're going to help you out anyhow. And that's God's mercy in action. Now, we should never give under compulsion. We should never go to somebody and say, I could say to you, you know, unless we have $100,000 by the end of the year, God's going to kill me. And there was a pastor who did that. You guys know his name? Only he said $8 million, and that was Pastor Oral Roberts. And I, at the time, I said, well, sorry to see you go, because you're not going to get any money from me. That's the coercion tactic that is there. And we should always give generously. And if somebody is going to give generously to you, how much would it be? And that's how you'd look at others. If you're going to give generously to them, uh, you can figure out how much that would be. Well, here's a dollar. Is that generous according to their need? It might be. Also, we should give sacrificially. Sacrificially means we give in order or to help somebody, but we want to make sure that we're not giving out of our abundance. And that's what the Pharisees were condemned for. And the widow's might, you know, in Mark chapter 12, talks about that, verse 41. The woman, she gave all that she had. Now, some people read that and say, oh, that was foolish. She gave away everything that she had. Jesus commended her for that. And and so not that I would say you have to give everything you have. You don't, it's not under compulsion. Nobody is making you do so. And, And it's willingness. The Lord puts it in somebody's heart. So we should give sacrificially. It should cost us something in order to give. And we should give systematically. On a regular basis, you know, uh, in a church, the bills don't stop just because people stop giving. And you, maybe you have to dig into savings every once in a while. And, you know, like anybody else would have to, businesses have to do that all the time. But we should give systematically in order to keep that from happening. And when we give to the Lord, he credits our account in heaven. He he puts forward to heaven what we give. And we're not going to outgive the Lord. He will repay us for what we have done. And when we give, it is pleasing to God. And as we give, we need to trust in the Lord's provision. So uh, questions come up. What if I need to take care of an elderly parent and I don't have the money to tithe and take care of them? Scripture's clear. Take care of the elderly parent. Don't give 
to the church. I would say that would also apply to a child who is sick, you know, or another family member who is sick. There are things that would preclude giving to the church. And if the rest of the church is giving, we'd be able to give something back to an individual like that. And some people ask, well, where should I start? Should I give 10%? How much should I give? It's up to you. How much do you want to be blessed? Some people say, well, do I give off the net or give off the gross? Which do you want blessed? Do you want the net or do you want the gross blessed? It's up to you guys how much you think you should be giving. And if I buy something for the church, can I just deduct that from my tithe? What if somebody, say you were struggling and, they, and you needed food and they came up and said, I bought you a bicycle. Okay, how's the bicycle? But I don't need a bicycle. I need food. And you let the person determine what it is or explain their need and you meet that need. You don't buy something necessarily. Well, somebody would say, but the church needs this. Okay, well, let the church decide to buy that particular thing if it needs it. Because we, what if we need a bunch of lights, but rent is due? And you went and bought the lights. Well, that's not going to help with rent, right? And, and so we, we want to make sure we're giving with wisdom as well. And those who give receive the same as those who go into the battle. Remember David and Ziklag and all of that where some of the guys are left behind, but they, the ones who are left behind to protect everything, they receive the same reward as those who went out into the battle to retrieve all the goods and, and, and all the people that were taken in that particular battle. And that is in the Old Testament, First Samuel chapter 29. And so those who give here and, and those who don't, those who don't, if they don't have money, well, if they're serving and they don't give as much as somebody does, they, everyone gets the same reward from the Lord. Uh, now, others would ask, can I give to whom I wish and not give to the church? I actually had a family member say this to me once. I would say, well, that would be an offering, but that's not the first and foremost thing you're supposed to do. You're supposed to give to the Lord. And by, by the way, all this applies to me as well. It doesn't just apply to you. It applies to me. We're all in the same boat. And so the final instruction, application for all of this, we do not give to get. We do not seek to be the one to receive. And let love be the motivation for giving for Christ and for others. It's as simple as that. And we want to have the earnestness on the inside. We want to excel in all of those areas, whether it be love or knowledge or uh, any of those things that were the, the Corinthian church was told to be excelling in. But we want to make sure we excel in this as well. Imagine if every believer that attended church gave according to what the Lord told them. And I think oftentimes, and I've made that mistake, I, I didn't give what the Lord told me to give. And what if that happened where everybody did? There would be such an abundance. People would be so blessed. More people would come into the church, first seeking some revenue, but then maybe getting saved. And that's what we want. That's what it's all about. So may the Lord provide for you wisdom in the handling of your finances. May you take a leap of faith if you think that, oh, I don't have the money to give. Well, just try it. The Lord gave a promise in Malachi chapter 3. Put the Lord to the test. One thing you can test God in. And if you do, he will bless. I have full faith and confidence that he will not let you down. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. And may he make his face shine upon you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it instructs us. It tells us the practical daily things that we're supposed to be involved in. And help us not to forsake this, Lord. Help us not to put teachings like this that you deliver to us. Help us not to put them to the side and not be concerned about it. Help us to be diligent. Help us to be good stewards over the things, the products, the wealth that you have given to us. So, Father, ultimately, as I prayed before, that you might be glorified and blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.